Hello out there, welcome back. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast. Your chance to catch up on all the buzz in the green economy. We've got a new show every two weeks that covers the politics, the business, the technology, the people, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, we are feeling hopeful. We see the light at the end of the tunnel. So let's talk economic recovery from covid Helen Mountford from World Resources Institute is here to talk about what's happening around the world. And Richard Florizone from International Institute for Sustainable Development provides an update on Canada's efforts here at home. Then, Canada's new XPRIZE winner, Jennifer Wagner, is here to explain Carbon Cure's winning technology and her quest to capture 500 million tonnes of climate pollution. After that, we'll hear a 60-second summary of a new report, and Mike Moffat caps it all off with his list of five things happening in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. Well, we're all ready for it. We're all desperate for it. An economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. And with Gen Xers in Canada now getting their turn with the vaccine, a return to normal is in sight. But many are quick to question normal. Why would we want normal? Pre-pandemic normal is 50 billion tons of climate pollution pumped into the atmosphere every year. Meanwhile, economic recoveries can be problematic. The world's recovery following from the 2008-2009 global recession led to a historic increase in climate pollution. That's why countries around the world have for months been calling for a green recovery. Bring back the economy, without bringing back the pollution. Well, now that we're seeing glimmers of recovery in some parts of the world, is it green? Well, to answer that, I'm speaking with Helen Mountford. Helen is the Vice President for Climate and Economics at World Resources Institute in Washington, D.C., an organization that's tracking green recoveries globally. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. Helen, first, let me start by asking, what is your COVID state of mind right now? How optimistic are you about a big economic recovery coming out of this pandemic? I have to say, I think I swing from optimistic to pretty pessimistic on about an hourly basis these <laughs> days. We do, we do know from the recent sort of IMF World Bank spring meetings, the economic uh, projections that the big institutions are making look more positive than what we've been thinking they might do. At the same time, right now, we're uh, seeing absolutely tragic results of a second wave of COVID hitting in India, hitting in Brazil. Um, and we're seeing, you know, frightening developments in terms of uh, new variants coming through. Um, so on the one hand, we've got the vaccinations that are starting to roll out. Nowhere near enough equity in how those are being distributed around the world. Far too much, you know, protectionist and nationalism, not global cooperation. So all of this affects how quickly and what kind of an economic recovery we'll have. Now, according to a World Resources Institute report from earlier this year, economic recoveries can be dangerous things when it comes to the environment. Why is that? That's right. Uh, in fact, with an economic recovery, we actually have an incredible opportunity to put the economy onto a much more sustainable, healthier, and inclusive pathway. But we also have a real risk that instead, what we might do is lock in even further the old polluting and, and congested economy of the past. 
And we have seen some of that before. Um, the report that you referenced uh, there was one we did, which was about the global financial crisis in 2008-2009. And, and it was very mixed in terms of how green the recovery was in different countries and with different measures. And for some of the, what we found in some countries is there were measures that were put in place that were green initially, but then did not have the policies and the approaches built in to actually keep them going over time. Mm. So there was short-term flash in the pan and then stop. Others, and, and I would cite, I mean, what we saw in a few, where there was real investment in building out new clean industries, such as wind or solar industries, et cetera. Some of those actually help to create the industries of the future, which are now strong and competitive, for example, in China or in the U.S. Hmm. And, and that gets into my next question a little bit. You know, for people who are at home uh, tracking a green recovery and, and have their, you know, their green recovery bingo cards out, what is it that they should be looking out for? <laughs> what, what sort of actions should we expect to see uh, in order to have a green recovery? One of, one of the ways that um, many economists look to sort of boost uh, the boost growth coming out of this kind of um, hit to the economy is let's build some things that puts people to work, that invest in the economy, often building infrastructure that people need in any case, our economies need. So this is a way to help do that. Now, are you building those things which will actually be the job creators, those um, those industries of the future, or are you investing in the old ones, the fossil fuels, oil and gas pipelines, etc.? We know that uh, clean energy, energy efficiency, restoring degraded land, um, uh, investments in public transport, these are the kinds of things that can, dou- can, can generate double or more the number of jobs as investments as coal, oil, or gas. The same investments, you'll get double the amount of jobs. So look at what you're investing in if there's a build-out in infrastructure. That's one. Another one we've seen is um, already is bailout of companies. And we had a lot of this in the early days of the pandemic where there was a rush to bail out companies that were struggling. Now, what that tended to be is for the sort of large um, incumbent fossil fuel-based industries. We saw bailouts for oil and gas companies, airlines, shipping, or special terms for them. Um, and often without the social or environmental conditions that would actually help to ensure that those companies kept their employees rather than losing them during the pandemic and actually moved towards a cleaner, greener way of working. What's your take then on how the world is doing right now when it comes to green recovery? Um, definitely mixed, but better than I would have said six to eight months ago. How about that? There's actually, Vivid Economics has been doing a fantastic job of tracking um, um, environmental-related stimulus efforts and recovery efforts in different countries. They find that only about 30% of stimulus is actually related to environment at all, but the 30% that is environment-related has been tending towards more dirty rather than green when you look across countries. And different countries vary quite a bit, but overall, when you look across all of them, it's been much more dirty. What they've found is that over the last three to four months, um, as as countries go into the next waves of providing um, economic support and stimulus, it's actually shifted greener in most countries around the world. We've seen a notable shift. And that's not just in the U.S., where, of course, we've had a, a change in government with a very, very different view on climate. Mm-hmm. So not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, we've seen it going greener. And I think part of that is that recognition that these green investments are the ones that are going to generate jobs 
um, you know, position the economies well in terms of competitiveness, etc. So there has definitely been a shift. Helen, great to speak to you. Thanks so much for giving us a glimpse of what's happening on green recoveries around the world. And wonderful to speak to you. Thanks so much, Eric. That was Helen Mountford from the World Resources Institute. So Helen has given us an idea of what's happening with green recovery efforts around the world. How about here in Canada? To speak to the Canadian context, I'm welcoming Richard Florizone. Richard is the president and CEO of the International Institute for Sustainable Development. He was also the chair of Canada's Task Force for a Resilient Recovery, which issued recommendations last year to the Government of Canada on how to kickstart a green recovery from COVID. Richard, thanks for being on the show. Hi, Eric. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be here. Now, Richard, I asked Helen, so I have to ask you too, what is your COVID state of mind right now? Well, it, uh, to quote uh, a great uh, Nirvana song, here we are now, vaccinate us. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, look, I, I'm in Ontario. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm, I'm uh, you know, so the, they're vaccinating 40 and above. So I'm registered and I'm keen. At the same time, I have to say my state of mind is, is casting a wary eye over the news out of Brazil and India and other countries. You must be a Gen Xer, Richard, because that's the first time Nirvana has ever been quoted, even, <laughs> even, if, even if misquoted on this podcast. Um, Richard, last year you chaired a task force that provided recommendations for a Canadian green recovery. What are the key things that you found that Canada needs to do for a green economic recovery from COVID? Yeah, thanks, Eric. I, you know, we were clearly looking for measures that do two things. One that are good for the economy, but also positive for the environment. And what emerged over the course of the year and also in our research was that I think there are big three that have appeared in a number of countries and that appeared in uh, some expert research around what are the best measures and investments to hit those two goals. Mm. And that's those those big three, I'd say, are investments in buildings and retrofits for efficiency and, and lower emissions, investments in clean energy infrastructure, to kind of get us, uh, you know, to that future that we all want to get to, that net zero future, and investments in nature, um, recognizing that those have some of the best returns, uh, not just for biodiversity and those kind of co-benefits, but mm-hmm. that investments in nature could actually lead to, you know, a third of the the mitigation we want to see for Paris targets. So those were kind of the big three I've always had in mind. And then what I'd add to them in the Canadian context, of course, and other nations are dealing with this, I'd add transportation, uh, you know, getting ready for the Zebra revolution. Um, and then economy-wide measures, kind of incentives and other things that you want to see to get uh, the uptake of of of, uh, of clean energy and clean technology across the economy. So that's kind of the package of things that we came up with. And I would say it's been very consistent of what we've seen in Europe and Asia. Um, and of course, in the United States with uh, Biden's major move since his election. Hmm. And of course, it's budget season. Governments in Canada, uh, many provincial and uh, just last week, the federal have released their budgets for the year. Um, and they're signaling what their big moves are going to be uh, for the year and for for the recovery coming out of COVID. Um, do you like what you see when it comes to to what's in those budgets and, and for what it means for a green recovery? Yeah, I mean, I think the federal budget, um, and I've looked a little less provincially at this point, but I think the federal budget uh, takes very much the steps in the right direction. And there's, but I think, you know, in terms of particular strengths, they've off, obviously gone big on nature. And I think, you know, that's welcome, um, especially with concerns about biodiversity that I think have been heightened by COVID. So those are really welcome moves. I think the investment in ag is really smart. Um, it's a fundamentally important, um, and here I'm, I have to disclose my bias. I'm from Saskatchewan, right? So that's going to be a, <laughs> that's going to be an industry that's close to my heart and my family roots. Um, uh, and so I think that that was a wide invest, wise investment. The other bet that I think they're making here that's positive 
is the investments in the net zero accelerator. They announced $3 billion in December and then another five in the budget, so $8 billion towards uh, helping industry to make this transformation. Okay, so Richard, so those are some of the strengths that you've seen in, in the federal budget. What don't you like about what you're seeing? Well, I think, I think that there's three or four areas where they've signaled and made some moves, but my sense is we should expect to hear more. So I wouldn't call them so much weaknesses as I'd say, you know, stay, stay tuned. And that would be around zero emission vehicles. Uh, you know, we've seen the investments in the supply chain. We saw very big investments in public transit, which is, which is excellent. Um, but, uh, you know, I think given the scale of this electric vehicle revolution, I still think we're going to see um, more investment needed in charging infrastructure. And so we'll have to see how that plays out between public and private investments. So watch for that. I think buildings, the kind of deep retrofits that are required um, to reduce uh, energy consumption and lower emissions, you know, the scale of the program based on what we've seen internationally, there's quite a bit more that will have to come there. Okay. Um, and then finally around clean energy and, and, and electricity. And I finally, I sorry, Eric, I have to add one more, which is really important to me. And that is international climate finance. So, uh -huh. so Canada and other countries have an obligation to help those countries who are least responsible for the climate crisis, but are often most impacted by it. And that's called international climate finance. It helps developing countries to both mitigate and adapt to climate change that's already baked in from, from much of our economic activity. The U.S., uh, Biden, uh, President Biden just announced a doubling of his commitment at the Leader Summit. Mm -hmm. uh, Canada is still, I think now, will probably be bottom of the G7. But Prime Minister Trudeau has indicated that we'll have a forthcoming announcement. So I'm hoping by the, by the G7 meeting in June or thereabouts, we'll have an increased commitment to that very important um, responsibility that Canadians have to help developing countries. Okay. Richard, that uh, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for giving us a bit of a summary of, of what you're seeing in terms of the development of Canada's green recovery. Thanks, Eric. It's always a pleasure. That's Richard Florizone, President and CEO of the International Institute for Sustainable Development. For more on green recovery, go to this episode's webpage. We've got World Resource Institute's report on the problematic recovery coming out of the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. We've got real-time online tracking of international green recovery efforts, courtesy of Vivid Economics. And we've got a summary by Smart Prosperity Institute of what last week's federal budget means for the clean economy. All at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. In 1994, XPRIZE launched the first of its famous global competitions to drive technology breakthroughs. That first competition had a $10 million prize and focused on spaceflight. You may have heard of the company it helped launch, SpaceX. Well, in 2015, XPRIZE was back, launching a new $20 million competition, this time to drive technologies that can turn carbon dioxide pollution into value-added products. The prize would go towards the technology that could do two things. One, remove the most carbon pollution from the atmosphere, and two, turn it into the most commercially valuable product. Well, two weeks ago, Canada's Carbon Cure was named one of two winners for that final prize. I spoke to Carbon Cure's president in the days leading up to that announcement, so in this interview, she's not actually aware that her company is about to win, but she does ponder what the company might do with the prize money. Here's my interview with Jennifer Wagner. Jennifer Wagner is the president of Carbon Cure Technologies, a clean tech company based out of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Jennifer, thanks for being on the show. Hi, Eric. Happy to be here. 
Jennifer, how does the carbon cure technology work? And, and where does it fit in this, this broader world of carbon removal technologies? Yeah, so there's been a lot of talk about carbon removal over the last, say, 18 months or so. And where we fit in is we uh, operate in the space of utilization. So uh, CO2 gets captured from somebody else. That's not where we operate. Um, we're agnostic to this two-source, but that's CO2. Um, comes to a concrete plant that's installed our technology and the technology injects the CO2 into concrete. And what happens is that the CO2 is actually chemically converted into a solid mineral. And so that CO2 will be embedded in the concrete as a, as a mineral forever. There's no chance of reversal. So it's a way to get CO2 out of the air and permanently store it in concrete. And, and so what does it look like? Yeah, so if you can picture, say, a piece of equipment the size of a small suitcase, uh, two of those boxes will get installed at a concrete plant. And the concrete producers are able to continue making concrete the same way they've been making it for the last 100 years. And that's really important because we don't want to disrupt their operations. So when Carbon Cures technology gets installed, uh, we bring in a tank of gas and a CO2 supplier will fill that on a regular basis. And our, our system will inject that CO2 while the concrete's being mixed. And that's when that reaction takes place. What's really interesting about adding CO2 to concrete is that there are also some other co-benefits to doing so. So not only are you uh, getting rid of CO2, but you're also enhancing the performance of the concrete, uh, which can lead to uh, cement savings, sales differentiation, and even water and solid waste benefits. So it's sort of a, there's multiple ways uh, that the producer benefits. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we're growing so quickly. Yeah. So, so Jennifer, how, how's business? Where's, where's this technology being adopted right now? Yeah, business is booming. I mean, right now we're in about, our technology is installed in about 300 concrete plants around the world. Wow. And that's in, you know, seven countries, uh, Canada, US, Bolivia, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, and Singapore. And we also internationally use distributor partners uh, and we have distributors now in five countries around the world as well so uh, we're growing quite quickly what does the future hold for carbon cure what where is is the sky the limit there's so much more we can do so today we're in 300 plants around the world there's about a hundred thousand plants globally so we are really just scratching the surface wow. another way that we're um, mapping out our growth is by expanding our portfolio. So right now we have a few technologies available for concrete producers, uh, mainly in the masonry, precast, and ready mix space. But we're also continuing to innovate and developing new carbon removal technologies to bring to market. Everything we do is defined by this mission, uh, 500 megatons by the year 2030. Uh, that's our sort of shining light, our North Stars. We want to hit that target in the next 10 years. So we're really doing everything we can to, to reach that mission. Mm. And so every decision we make every day has to align with that mission. Wow. 500 megatons by 2030, which is, uh, I'm, I'm doing some math on the top of my head. Yeah. But that, that's about, you know, two thirds, maybe three quarters of, of Canada's total emissions. The best way to look at it is it's about equivalent to taking 100 million cars off the road for a year. Yeah, I think Canada has a pretty unique position in the global race to develop carbon removal technologies. If you think about more broadly, clean tech in Canada, 11 of the top 100 clean tech companies in the world um, that were ranked by the clean tech group this year are Canadian. Like 11 out of 100. That's amazing. Um, last year, we were recognized as North America's clean tech company of the year. 
And this year, another Canadian company in the carbon removal space, carbon engineering, was uh, ranked number one. But then if you drill down to carbon removal, uh, there's some interesting things happening in Canada as well with the Carbon X Prize. So that's a $20 million competition that's been running for the last five years. Yeah. We just wrapped up the final round in December, and the winner of that final prize will be announced in the spring. And several of the finalists are Canadian, and actually Calgary was the host of the final round. Yeah, I was going to ask about uh, that X Prize. What what do you do with the money? <laughs> <laughs> We've got big plans. So and. Big, big plans take uh, take big dollars. So I think um, uh, winning the X Prize would uh, be really exciting, both from a cash standpoint, but also from a from a marketing standpoint. Have, being recognized as a X Prize winner sort of comes with global recognition. So I think for us, yeah, being a part of of the X Prize uh, winning team uh, goes a long way. Okay. Okay. Well, good luck on that. Jennifer, I'll stop there. I thanks so much for being on Smart Prosperity, the podcast. Thank you, Eric. It was fun. That was Jennifer Wagner, president of Carbon Cure Technologies. I reached her at her home in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island. Now it's time for the 60-second report. It's something we do every show. It's where we invite the author of a major new report to sum it all up in 60 seconds or less. This week, we're welcoming Ian Skolton. Ian is with Indigenous Clean Energy Network and the lead author of their new report, Energy Foundations, the value proposition for financing energy-efficient homes in Indigenous communities Canada-wide. Ian, over to you. Indigenous communities across Canada are faced with chronically substandard housing. These homes can have severe negative impacts on the health of community members, both physically and mentally. There are systemic issues at play, though, that make improving the situation very hard. We see energy efficiency as a tool that can begin shifting the path that Indigenous housing is on. So this report lays out the value proposition for financing energy efficiency in Indigenous homes. We do the math and find that it could create over 73,000 jobs, result in over $185 million per year in household savings, and avoid close to 1 million tons of emissions per year, not to mention the financial benefits in terms of asset enhancement and, most importantly, health improvements. To get there, we estimate a need for $5.4 billion in investment in minor upgrades, deep energy retrofits, and energy-efficient new builds. This amount of money isn't expected from the federal government, so we conclude by proposing to convene a national process to put in place mechanisms that allow private investment capital to be unlocked for these types of projects. Thanks, Ian. For a link to that new report from Ian Skolton and Indigenous Clean Energy Network, visit this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. And last but not least, it's the final segment of every show. It's where I turn to my colleague, Mike Moffat, to recap all the things happening in the green economy this week that weren't covered elsewhere on the show. Mike is the senior director here at Smart Prosperity Institute. Mike, over to you for the top five things we should know about in the green economy this week. Well, here are the five things that I'm watching this week. 
Number one, at a virtual climate summit hosted by U.S. President Joe Biden last week, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has committed Canada to an even more ambitious climate goal, aiming to reduce emissions by 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by the year 2030, up from the previous 30 percent target. Number two, similarly, President Biden also announced a new and more ambitious climate commitment, pledging to reduce emissions by at least 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. This is the first official American climate target since Donald Trump revoked the country's participation in the Paris Climate Agreement. Number three, other promises at the summit include China committing to begin phasing out coal over the next 10 years, and Brazil pledging to eliminate illegal deforestation of the Amazon, a promise that was met with extreme skepticism, according to the New York Times. Number four, despite new climate targets, Canada's greenhouse gas emissions have continued to rise between 2018 and 2019, according to the government's National Inventory Report, which shows that emissions rose by 1% in 2019. Number five, a group of major global banks, insurers, and investment fund managers have committed to use their influence over financial markets to accelerate climate action. The new Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero Initiative, led by former governor of the Bank of Canada, Mark Carney, mobilizes a total of 70 trillion U.S. dollars for a clean economy. I'm Mike Moffat, and those were the five things I'm watching this week. Thank you, Mike. For a second glance at those stories, Mike has them written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. That's it for this episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. The views shared on this show are always evidence-based. That's the way we roll at Smart Prosperity Institute. But it's not to say that there aren't other views. If you've got a view of your own that can help in our understanding of the environment and the economy, email me or at me on Twitter. I want to hear it. All my contact information can be found at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. I'm Eric Campbell. I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe peoples. Thanks for listening. The next episode is out May 12th. I hope you'll tune in then.